the word hopeless. Is there a worse word in the English language than that? Hopeless. When I say the word hopeless, what comes to your mind? What words do you think of? Despair. Thanks, Josh. Despair. What else comes to mind? Darkness. Depression. Failure. Doubt. Impossible. What else do you think of? Sadness. Well, I heard one over here. Giving up. The end. A prisoner trapped. The sort of idea that the future is as bad or probably worse than the present. What else do you think of? Grim, hopelessness, fear. What about anxiety? Sorrow, worry, pain. Yeah, that's a pretty bad word too, Ella. Failure, lost, depression, trapped, all of these ideas, hopeless. Do you know these feelings of hopelessness? Maybe you've been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and there is no cure. Feeling the definition of hopeless. Maybe you look around in the country in which we live at the political divide, the divisiveness and the acrimony, and the future looks far worse than the present, which doesn't look good as it is. Maybe you have a loved one who struggles with mental illness, and the situation just simply looks hopeless. It goes from bad to worse. Perhaps you're out of work at an older age and you're looking around saying, I can't see any reason why someone's going to hire me at my age to work. Maybe you're trying to learn English as a second language, as a foreign language, and you're struggling with it. Why so many strange words and constructions in this language and you think to yourself, I'm never going to make it. Maybe your life is not turning out the way that you hoped it would and there's more years behind you than there are in front of you and you're looking at the situation and you're thinking, well, I might have had hope in the past, but now it's gone. There's no light seemingly at the end of the tunnel. The other day, Lisa and I were in a used bookstore and the lady who owned the store was running the store she was carrying on a conversation that we were sort of listening to because we were there shopping for books. And she was going on and on about the fact that the earth is being destroyed through climate change. She was actually somewhat irrational about it. She basically thought no one should have kids anymore because there's not going to be earth around for them in however many years. Now, we can laugh a little bit at the sort of irrationality of it, but we know that hopelessness is not rational. <laughs> Whatever it may be, whether it's the world at large, you can look around at the world and see morality seems to be getting worse and worse. People are not drawing closer and closer to Jesus in this country. They seem to be moving further away, and it can feel hopeless like the darkness, the spiritual warfare, the sin, just going from bad to worse. 
Yet in the midst of these examples of hopelessness, and they can be multiplied many times over, in the midst of this hopelessness, all year long, we have been saying aloud this verse from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That didn't sound right. Would you say this with me aloud? (laughs) May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All year long, we have been declaring a God of hope and the promise that we will overflow with hope even in the midst of hopeless situations. So this morning, what we'd like to do is spend some time talking about how the God of hope provides hope when it's hopeless. So please take a Bible and turn not to Romans 15, but to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, if you need a Bible, there should be one that looks like this in the rack in front of you. In these Bibles, John chapter 12 is page 873. John chapter 12. When I was praying through the preaching schedule and the possibility of speaking about our benediction verse, this verse from Romans 15, came near Palm Sunday, it felt like the right Sunday to talk and to preach through this verse. Because on Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem to bring hope that the story of Holy Week is that through Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, God is giving hope to the world, to the hopeless. And that the book of Romans has been about the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is hope in the face of Satan sin, and death. And so this morning, we want to look at Jesus on this Palm Sunday and think about the idea of hope. Because the truth of the matter is, not only does Jesus' death and resurrection provide us with hope, his life shows us how to experience that hope even in the face of hopelessness. Now, John chapter 12, if you look in verse 12, that's the passage that Andy read for us earlier. It's the classic triumphal entry, the passage into Jerusalem when Jesus is entering uh, on this Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago. We're not going to look at that portion of Palm Sunday Instead, look over at verse 23. Notice that we're still in the same chapter, and most likely we're still on the same day, or at least early in this holy week 2,000 years ago. In other words, 
what we're going to look at, the passage that begins in verse 23, is not what is being said about Jesus on Palm Sunday. That's verses 12 and following. What we're going to look at is what Jesus is saying on Palm Sunday. It begins in verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now many of us who might be familiar with reading the Gospels or the Gospel story will hear the phrase, My hour has not yet come. Or, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Over and over again, when people are wanting Jesus to do something miraculous, or they're wanting to harm Jesus, whatever it may be, we are told again and again, but his hour had not come. Now, it's come. This is the hour. This is the last week. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Everything that he's been doing has been leading up to this week. And he walks in on Palm Sunday and he says, now is the time. This is what it's all been leading up to. This is what we've been heading for. All the rest of that stuff, as important as it was, that was not yet my hour. The hour has come. It's time to begin the end. He goes on, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. What is the subject that Jesus is teaching on on this Palm Sunday all those years ago? Well, of course, it's death. That's what he's thinking about. The hour has now come. It's Sunday. In five days, he is going to die. That's what's on his mind. It's what would be on your mind. It was what would be on my mind. And he uses this analogy about a seed falling to the ground and dying. Now, when we think about it, this is the time of year for planting seeds. This is the time of year in which we think about growing things. And the beautiful imagery and the metaphor is, is that from just a tiny seed comes fruits and vegetables, all sorts of plants, and that you put this seed into the ground and the miracle of life occurs. That from the ground outsprouts life, more life than could possibly be contained in a tiny seed. It's a beautiful picture. Unless you're the seed. Right? Because what do we do with the seeds? We dig a little hole in the ground, into the black topsoil, We drop in a seed, and then what do we do? We bury it. Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. That's what's on his mind. This is the week. 
It's hard to be the seed on that week. That's what's going through Jesus' mind. Death is coming. Notice what happens in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. Now sometimes when you read a passage, you just kind of read from one sentence to the next, and we don't stop and think that there might have been a pause, or there might have been that this was actually a person teaching these things. So what I want you to do is kind of in your mind's eye to try to picture how this might be going. It's Palm Sunday, and Jesus is teaching, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. And then can you in your mind's eye see him pause for a moment? As the realization hits him, he's the seed. And what happens? In the midst of the teaching, he says, now my soul is troubled. We're no longer talking about seeds anymore. We're no longer talking about growing wheat. We're no longer talking about producing fruit. All of a sudden, right in the middle of the teaching, Jesus announces, my soul is troubled. The word for troubled is a word that in other contexts is translated terrified. Sometimes it's translated disturbed. Sometimes it's translated anxious. It's the same word Jesus will use a few days later on Thursday night when Judas betrays him. It's the same word Jesus will use of his disciples when he says, in this world you will have trouble. It's the same idea Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, my soul is overwhelmed with anguish so much so that I wish that I were dead rather than to go through this. It's the same idea that we think from Psalm 88 Jesus has going through his heart and mind in the midst of Caiaphas's dungeon on that early Friday morning as he's waiting for his trial before Pilate. You see, sometimes we think that Jesus merrily and happily marched towards death. That's not the case. Jesus is human. The idea of dying is difficult. It's hard. And can you imagine in your mind's eye, he's teaching about wheat and seeds and death, and then all of a sudden that wave hits him, and he stops teaching, and you can almost see him stagger. Now my soul is troubled. Do you know this feeling of hopelessness? Do you know this wave of anxiety or fear? You may be going through your day just fine, not thinking about the fact that you're out of work. And then all of a sudden something happens and you get hit smack in the face with the hopeless feeling, I'm never going to find a job. You may have come to grips with the loss of that loved one and you may have gotten on with your life and you may realize they're in heaven, they're in a good place and then all of a sudden in the midst of a teaching or in the midst of a time you're talking to someone, it just rises up and hits you in the face and all of a sudden the hopelessness, the despair, the darkness, it's right there. You may be doing just fine living in America as a different culture. And you may have adapted to some of the different things that are going on here. And then one day out of the blue, maybe you're in the grocery store and just all of a sudden this wave of hopelessness hits you. That's what's happening to Jesus. He's human. 
What you experience, he experienced. Please don't think he's just happily going through life. Can't wait to get to that cross. Love it. When's it going to be here? He's talking about his own death. The hour has now come, and in the midst of it, he gets hit with a wave of hopelessness, and you can almost see him crippled to his knees. Now my soul is troubled. The question is, how does Jesus respond when that tidal wave of hopelessness hits him? You see, who wants a Savior that knows nothing about darkness? that knows nothing about depression, that knows nothing about anxiety or about fear or about hopelessness. Jesus knows all of those things. But the reason he is our savior is because he shows us how to respond to them when they happen. And what does he do? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What he's doing is he's choosing to put his trust in God's plan and God's character. No, this is part of God's plan. You can hear him reminding himself as he's teaching us. When his soul gets hit with the wave of darkness, the reminder is this is the plan. This is the plan. God is in control. Jesus, who is God, has entrusted himself to the Father and the Father's plan. And in his humanity, when the darkness, when the depression, when the hopelessness, when the fear, when the anxiety hits, he chooses to think about God's plan and his character. That's what glorify your name means. It means God, show your character. Show yourself to be a compassionate, powerful, loving God. And in the midst of hopelessness, Jesus turns his attention to God the Father, and he chooses to trust his plans and his character. What happens when he does that? Keep going in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The reason why the voice is for other people is the moment Jesus turns his mind to God's character and his plans, he's at peace. You can hear it. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Can you hear that? Does that not sound different than now my soul is troubled? How did Jesus move from that place of hopelessness to the place of peace? He gave it to God. He did what Romans 15, 13 is talking about. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this verse 
and show how Jesus put this verse into practice. When he was hit with the same waves of hopelessness that you and I are hit with. So that what happened with him might happen with us. Notice that the verse begins, may the God of hope. God is the source of hope. May the God of hope, he is the one who provides hope in the midst of this world. This world is hopeless. There is darkness, there is depression, there is anxiety, there is fear. But we are calling on the God of hope. That's who Jesus is looking to. That's who Jesus is turning his attention to, the God of hope. He's not finding hope in his circumstances. He's not looking around saying, well, it's not as bad as it could be. It is as bad as it could be. It couldn't possibly be worse. He is literally facing hell on earth. It can't get any worse. He doesn't try to comfort himself by saying, well, others don't have it as, I don't have it as bad as some other people do. He does not look around in the circumstances. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is Jesus turning his attention. There is one source of hope in this world for Jesus and for us, and it's God. It is not in the structures of this world. It is not in the monies of this world. It is not in the circumstances of life. It is not in our own intelligence, our own strength. It is not in the people around us. There is one person who is the source of hope, and it's God. The God of hope. Apart from God, there is no hope. Have you ever heard anyone say, I don't know how a non-Christian goes through something like this. That's because God is the only source of hope. And even when the non-Christian experiences hope, he or she is doing so because God is gracious and kind and is allowing them to have a taste of hope to try to draw them to himself. There's only one source for hope in this world. And it's God. What does that hope look like? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What is hope composed of? It's composed of joy and peace. How do you know when you have hope? You experience joy and peace. All joy and peace. When we talked about being joyful in hope from Romans chapter 12, we talked about the fact that joy in the New Testament most often occurs in situations where we have trials and tribulations. In the midst of those situations, God is providing hope. What does that hope look like? It looks like peace that passes understanding and joy that defies explanation. Look at Jesus again in John 12. Now is the time for the judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you not hear the peace there? 
Do you not? It's not that the circumstances have changed. Nothing changed from verse 27 to verse 30. Nothing. What has happened? God has provided peace. This is the plan. You can trust the plan. You can trust my character. He's also provided joy. That's a little tougher to see because Jesus is not telling us what his emotions are. But Hebrews 12, 2, which is commenting on how Jesus is feeling during this week, says of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What's Jesus thinking about now by the time we get to verse 30? He's thinking about the fact that Satan is going to be cast down and these people that he loves, you and I, are going to experience salvation. The joy that's set before him is that his death will not be in vain, but it will accomplish the life that the seed planted in the ground is designed to accomplish. What does hope look like for Jesus? Full of joy and peace in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. That's this promise. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How does that happen? As you trust in him. As you trust in him. Jesus says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is putting his faith and his trust in God the Father. This is all happening as a part of God's plan, and God can be trusted. He is a compassionate and gracious God. You can trust in his unfailing love. You say, well, of course, Jesus could trust that God was going to rescue him. He's Jesus. He's perfect. He lives a sinless life. Of course, Jesus can trust in God. God's not going to be angry with Jesus. Of course Jesus can trust in God. He's part of what God's doing. He's part of God's plan. Ah, but that misses the point. That on Good Friday, Jesus is not innocent. On Good Friday, Jesus is bearing the sins of the whole world. Now we say this. Think about that for a moment. On Friday, when the God of hope will turn his back on Jesus, it will be because at that moment Jesus is guilty of every murder that's ever been committed, every sexual assault that's ever happened, every blasphemous word that's ever been uttered, every selfish motive that has ever been concealed, at that moment, Jesus will not be innocent. He will be guilty of all of the heinous sins of all of humanity for all time. And the point is, if at that moment he can still trust in God's unfailing love, then certainly you and I, who will never be guilty of that much stuff, can still trust in God's unfailing love 
There is a reason why this verse comes at the end of the book of Romans, the book that tells us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The whole first three chapters are about what terrible, sinful people we are, all as a setup to show us that God's love is greater than our sin. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not even my own sins. Especially not your own sins. God will work all things together for good. Even my own failures. Even my own mistakes. Yes, and especially your own failures and your own mistakes. You can trust in God's character and his plan. Are you out of work at an older age? You can trust in God's character and God's plan. Has God asked you to move and to go on an adventure in a difficult place or a difficult part of the world? You can trust in God's character and God's plan. Have you made a mess of your life and destroyed your life by all sorts of sinful choices? You can trust in God's character and his plan. Has your life not turned out the way that you've wanted it to turn out? You can trust in God's character and his plan. God is a God of unfailing love. If his love failed for even one moment, for even one person in all of human history, he cannot be God. He cannot be the God of unfailing love. Not even once can it fail. And whether you understand or don't understand, whether you and I get it or don't get it, when you trust that God's plans and his purposes and his character are good, you will be full of joy and peace. The circumstances won't change. The promise is, when you realize that you are where you are, because God has planned it and purposed it, that no matter what you've done, no matter how you got there, nothing will ever separate you from God's love for you. When you turn your attention to that truth, the result is joy and peace. You say, but that's... Sounds good in theory, but I just can't do it. You don't know the anxiety. You don't know the fear. You don't know the darkness. You don't know the discouragement. You don't know how long it's been going on. You don't understand any of these things. That's true. But look at the last half of the verse so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you having hope in a hopeless situation is a miraculous work of God. It defies explanation. If the darkness wasn't that dark, it wouldn't be a miracle. 
If the depression wasn't that debilitating, it wouldn't be a miracle. If you could see your way to hope, it wouldn't be a miracle. If you could follow just a couple of steps to get to a place of hopefulness, it wouldn't be a miracle. The point is, this will only happen when God does this work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now look at what he's promised. Not just that you will have glimpses of hope. What has he promised? Overflow with hope. Have peace that passes understanding. Joy that defies explanation. Not because you can figure out the way to get there, but because God will do it in you. Remember, this all happens as you trust in him. What does that look like? Here is the word of the Lord. The God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear God's voice and you choose to believe that hope is possible, Not because you can figure out how to get there, but because the God who loves you has declared it in his infallible word that you will experience that hope. If today you believe that that's possible, you will experience hope. I can do no more except to declare to you the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Spoken from God's mouth to your ears this day. The God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the moment. At this moment, Satan wants to say to you, not for you, it can't happen. You've not had hope yet so far. Your situation is not what he's talking about. He doesn't know what your sins are. Here's the choice. God is declaring to you, no exceptions, the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And your choice is, will you believe God or not? And if you want to look around at all the circumstances and all the details and say it's not possible... It's not possible. If you want to fix your eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus, help my unbelief. I want to believe it's possible. You will experience it. It's the word of the Lord. Now, in closing, I want to leave you with something from the Psalms. I've often told you, when you're going through difficult circumstances, find your psalm. Find that psalm that seems to just speak the words you need to hear that's from God's mouth to your heart directly. Do you know Jesus has some psalms specifically on his heart and mind this last week? John 12 doesn't tell us what they are, but Acts 2 does. It says in the midst of this wave of hopelessness that will come not only on Palm Sunday but also on Monday, Thursday, also in the Garden of Gethsemane, also in the dungeon in Caiaphas, also when he's hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of these waves of hopelessness that come, Peter tells us that Jesus is saying to himself, 
something from Psalm 16. And I want to leave it with you today because it's not just true for Jesus. It's true for us as well. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. And Peter adds in Acts 2, will rest secure in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Let's pray together. You are the God of hope. If hopelessness is one of the worst words in the English language, Lord, then you declaring that you are the God of hope is one of the best phrases we can hear. Lord, today, many came this morning having been hit with tidal waves of hopelessness this week. Even during this service and during this time in which we're supposed to be just worshiping and praising you, we have given way to thoughts of hopelessness and despair and, and depression and discouragement. <clears throat> but now, Lord, for this congregation and for myself, I claim this promise, and I ask you to show yourself to be faithful. Lord, I ask that you would perform a miracle among us and do what only you can do. Cause us to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that even those who do not yet know Jesus would hear this verse and would be willing to allow you to give them hope so they might know that you love them and they might come to be saved. Lord, I pray for those who have been Christians for a long time but have forgotten that you are the God of hope and that hope is not found in our circumstances, but in you. And Lord, I pray especially for those who have dwelt in darkness for a long time. Lord, they've given up the ability to be able to think that there might be hope. Lord, speak into the darkness, into the void and into the chaos. Once before in the darkness, you said, let there be light. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Lord, some among us dwell in darkness. Your voice is the voice of light. Speak to them the words of hope. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.